if these two people, this couple, first-time home purchasers, qualify and buy a home, they would be the first people in the history of the family. Not like in a generation, like for Ever. as far back as the to own a home. Wow. And that's all it took. They completed the application. 21 days later, they were approved. And a couple of weeks later, they settled the loan. And now they own a home. And there was no price discussion, no interest rate discussion, no nothing. One question, yes. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today I have a special episode. We're taking the best of clips from the last 12 months, and we've got seven episodes where we're sharing some awesome stuff from Ron Butler, Jim Trelukas, Christine Buman, Todd Duncan. And it's going to be a fun episode for you guys. If you kind of missed any of these, this is one you can use to catch up on all those insights. Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. It's very easy to use for brokers as well as borrowers. It's got some cool features. Smart Docs is one of them. Basically, when the client's filling out the application, if they're self-employed, the application knows and knows what documents to ask for. They've got smart submission notes. When you go to hit the submit, it pulls the key data from the application to pass on to your lender. Because if you've ever seen what a lender sees on their side of the screen, it actually looks drastically different than what you see. And every lender is different. And finally, it's got a connection to Lender Spotlight, which has all the rates, guidelines. It can go in and search and let you know if your file is even going to be a fit. So go check them out at lendescom slash Finmo. Set up a free demo and they'll walk you through their whole program. We'll jump into this best of episode. All right, in this first clip, it's with Ron Butler from episode 349 on predictions and why his competitors are burning money. Hilarious clip. He talks about predictions on inflations and interest rates. Very timely considering what's happening. We get into crypto and blockchain as well as advice after a big production year. I think this is pretty much prophetic. Have a listen and we'll jump into the next clip after that. Okay, so you think rates are going to rise in the next 12 months? What's your thoughts? Because there seems to be some like... Well, they've risen already, right? I mean, yeah. fixed is up. Doesn't look like it's going down anytime soon. The prime rate, you know what? Probably, you know, there's going to be a pressure on the government to try to get inflation under control. Inflation is a government killer. Now, people say, well, Trudeau doesn't care. He's in for another three years. Yeah, he cares. He cares. Because you take a look at the U.S., Biden and the Democrats are going to get slaughtered in the midterms next year if this inflation keeps up. They are just going to be destroyed. Uh, right. It's going to be a Republican landslide in the House and the Senate because the general public hates inflation because at the beginning of an inflation cycle, you're way behind. Mm -hmm. You know, prices go up, your wages don't go up fast enough. So you're mad. You're just mad. You're angry. All right? right. So is there a chance that prime rate goes up? Sure, there is. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with some of the people predicting eight increases in 24 months. A huge number of economists jumped out front and said, no, 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 you're all wrong on that. That's not happening. But will there be a prime rate increase next year? Absolutely. I believe there will be. So are there any indicators that you're watching before the bit? Like, what do you watch outside of just, you know, what the economists are saying? Is there anything that you keep an eye on? For well, this is the, you know, the real inflation rate is just drives it. You cannot retain super low prime rate and see inflation continue at 4.7, 4.8. If the number breaks through five, apparently there's 6% in the states right now, last month. So right. if we start to break through fives, oh my God, I mean, there's going to be a tremendous pressure. Right. But that doesn't change the supply problem. Like that's still- No, it doesn't. Pressure. It does not. No. 
Yeah, because we still have a supply issue. Okay, so what about like, do you follow crypto at all? What are your thoughts on crypto? And do you ever think it's going to be part of real estate? What's your sort of insight on that? Well, blockchain could absolutely be part of real estate. The backbone could you, of could crypto. you explain blockchain for somebody who doesn't understand it? I have like a rudimentary understanding of it, but I'd love to hear how you would explain blockchain to like a broker at a bar. If you're four beers in, how do you explain blockchain to me? <laughs> well, if you're four beers in, it's like this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you won't care. But if you're six beers in, I got some NFT shit from Chris Turkoff that I want to sell you. Okay. But right. the bottom line is that <laughs> blockchain is a process. Blockchain is a kind of accounting system that is foolproof and perfect, efficient, and easy to become completely digitalized. And it just keeps track of stuff. If you want to take the registry system in Ontario, it's currently with Terranet, and just turn it into blockchain, the prices would fall, the efficiency would rise, and the security would be perfect. So just imagine it as a foolproof accounting system. That's what blockchain is. Because instead of being stored on servers, it's stored on every server in the world. So right. can't lose it. Each crypto key is an individual key to something that can never be disturbed, never lost, never touched. So it's pretty damn good record-keeping system. I think of two, it's sort of like when I say to somebody, how do you know you own your house? Well, I own it. But yeah, how do you know? You got to go to the land titles on that computer somewhere, it says your name. But the way I think of it now is like NFTs or tokenizing things is just digital proof of ownership. It's like who owns it? And then the blockchain allows you to look at the trail of ownership, way more transparency than right now. We don't have a lot of transparency. We're going to pay Terranet to find out like what's going on with this property. The only downside that I see, and they'll fix this, is that the inefficiency is in the amount of electricity to run all these duplicate servers. There's been some complaints about like- No, you're talking about you're talking about crypto mining. That's a whole different thing. Okay, blockchain, explain that to me. Blockchain so explain, doesn't up electricity. That's okay, not. so how does crypto mining use electricity then? Because you have to do these jillions of calculations to churn out one coin. That's how Bitcoin works. So, you know, that's why Bitcoin and all of crypto was thrown into a shock when the Chinese government said, we don't want you to do any mining here anymore. You're not going to use our cheap electricity at all. So, look, I don't pretend to be an expert on crypto. I'm a crypto skeptic. I don't think Bitcoin is going to disappear tomorrow. But I actually think that things like NFTs, you know, the sort of cartoon art that's sold under NFTs, it's all going to end in tears. Like, I mean, it's just like, I'm old enough so that when I was younger, like grown ass men my age used to collect hockey cards because there was a mania about it. There was like a three year mania about hockey cards and baseball cards. And people were filling their basements up with boxes of friggin' baseball cards. And all of a sudden, one day the market went away because people scratched their head and said, is this like tulip bulbs in Holland 400 years ago? I don't yeah, think I know. Yeah, baseball yeah, yeah. Cards, okay? So yeah, the yeah. NFT side of crypto is just ridiculous. The thing that interests me about it is, is that the digital proof of ownership and things that are physical that can be digitized. The pictures and tweets, like who cares about that? They're just playing around and getting attention. I think the really interesting stuff becomes when I can own my real estate or I can show ownership of something physical by using this digital proof of ownership, which is that, that which we'll always remember in a world in which a government wants a share of something, wants to put a tax on something, wants to attach fees to something, they're never going to open it up completely. Some places in Canada, we have double end transfer tax in some cities. No one's ever going to give that up. No one's ever going to say, yeah, just exchange these properties on your own, folks. Okay. Just exchange key codes and do it yourself. No, no. Yeah, they're, they're not going to be cool with that. No. Never going to happen, no, yeah, because yeah, the no. government wants their peace. Okay, yeah. that's it. Okay, so as we wrap up this conversation, which I love these conversations, what's kind of the last thoughts that you'd leave for anybody listening to this? 
Well, my last thoughts are something that I couldn't tell anybody 12 months ago because nobody suspected that after a pandemic and an economic catastrophe that it would be the greatest thing that ever happened to mortgages and real estate. Nobody actually knew that 12 or 14 months ago. So the thing I would have said back then is don't buy a Porsche. Don't buy a Maserati. Don't buy a cottage. Don't buy two boats. Don't buy six jet skis. Okay. This may be the best year of the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. We don't know this. But for those who have gone out, and this might sound crazy in a digital world, but some people actually went out and took on more office space. Some people hired more staff, not producers, but staff. Right. Some people went out and hired CFOs for their brokerages. Right. How can we guarantee that next year is going to be as good or not, maybe better than, I don't think it will be. I think that there is always a cycle in everything. And if we've had the best year in the history of the mortgage business, I don't think we can just do a 10% bump on that as our plan for next year. All right, hopefully you found that to be very interesting. In this next section, it's from episode 351, Jim Terlucas, and we talk about variable versus fixed and funding 60 mortgages a month. You can go back and listen to that one. A couple of things that Jim and I talk about, why he doesn't refer clients to other brokers. And you know, most people do, they think that that, ah, just send it off to someone else if I don't wanna do it. Jim doesn't do that. How to fund a lot of files and be efficient. And then some success stories from his coaching clients. So Jim is one of our amazing coaches at 10 Months a Month Academy. Uh, and he talks about that as well. So have a listen to that. Okay, what would you say your niche is? Who's your like target client that you work with? We started off with financial planners. That was our niche. And it still is a big part of our business. But I guess I think my niche right now is kind of silly, but my niche are my past clients. Right. You know, I would but they're say, all A business, um, right? This is all income qualified, oh, A business. Yeah, yeah, do you do any yeah. B business? Three. Three to four a year. That's it. And what about construction? Do you do construction? No. No construction. No do B, you? no private. No, right. no. Commercial? No. I mean, when I first started, I had 20 commercial deals on the go. 20. Do you know how many I funded? Zero. Right. Not one. I think they're like hunting elephants. You sure yeah. they're great, but your chance of getting one or not getting your head stomped on or yeah, like it's not for me. Yeah. Well, seven or eight years ago, I used to refer all my commercial deals to people. I stopped doing that. I mean, I just stopped. Okay. Why? Most people would think that's crazy. Why would you stop referring if you could? Isn't it just free money? Well, it's more the reputation than the money, right? So, one thing I'm going to make a couple thousand bucks or whatever I'm going to make. For me, it's when you refer someone, even with lawyers, right? I kind of stop referring to lawyers because if something goes wrong, you get dragged into it from a legal perspective from a reputational perspective, it's just not worth it. And the time perspective, right? My time is worth more than the money I may make from a commercial bill. And now I'm trusting someone to do a good job at my level. So I don't want to take that reputation. So I stopped doing yeah. that. I know yeah, most, most, most people that get your position do the same thing. They usually go, forget it. It's not worth the hassle. Yeah. Exactly. It's not a money thing anymore. It's more of a time and reputation. That's exactly what it is. So what do you think is the secret of funding so many mortgages with such a small team? Like I have some suspicions or things that I've noticed that you do uniquely, but I'm curious, what do you think allows you to do so much with two people? Yeah, there's a bunch of things, right? So what we talk about in one of their sessions is the 25 do's and don'ts, how to be efficient. And it's simple. I'll give you some examples. I mean, the first thing is you got to know how to filter out the junk, right? There's a lot of junk out there, right? A lot of time wasted in this industry from calls from clients who aren't really sincere to things that we fill our day with. Like I'll tell you one thing that we don't do is we don't go for lunch, right? If I go for lunch with someone, which by the way, I did last week with the Barico guys and that's my one lunch for the I day. saw you out actually. I was like, what is he doing out of his office? Like he came out of the cave long enough to like <laughs> eat somebody and go back to work. 
once per year, and that was it. But think about it, right? You're gonna drive to lunch half an hour. You're gonna sit for an hour and a half. You're gonna drive back for half an hour. Two and a half hours are gone. You're probably full. At least when I go for lunch, I'm full. I can't work after that. I need a pillow. So we don't do lunch. When we're here, it's all work, work, work. It's not a lot of fun, but it's effective. The other thing that we do, I mean, some of the things that we do is when I'm on the phone with a client and an underwriter calls me, I put the client on hold. I will put anyone on hold, anyone, if my underwriter is calling me. And the reason for that is they're working on my file. And when they're working on my file, they have a question. They need that question answered. If I don't answer that question, my file goes to the bottom of the pile. And guess what? They'll get back to me in two days or a day. We keep missing each other. So it's very ineffective. So my underwriters are gold. Actually, they're more important to me than my clients, to be quite honest. More important to me than my referral partners. So I do what I can to make sure they get what they want, whether it's submitting files the way they want them, whether it's submitting docs the way they want them. You tell me what you want. I'm here for you. That's another little golden nugget that we talk about. It comes down to being able to filter the files, being able to build a process and stick to it. You got to stick to your process. We have a very strict process that we stick to. You know, docs up front, credit card for all this docs up front. You know, one thing we do is, you know, we also have clients, if we don't know them, have you gone to your bank? Go to your bank and talk to your bank and find what they're going to give you and come back and call you. People think that's crazy. Why would you send your client to your bank? And the reason is, you know, part of our process is, when a client calls me up, I try to find their reason not to do the deal. Not right. to do the deal, but not to do the deal. And I do that because if I find a reason not to do the deal, guess what? They're going to find a reason. They're going to find it too. And then you just waste a whole bunch of time. I waste a whole bunch of time. So that's kind of the thing that we do is we push them away, but come back to us and let's have a chat. And then we deploy our strategy around how we wow our clients. You know, I tell you, I mean, Rate is not that important. We rarely buy down rates. If we do, we get it back. There's ways to get it back, but we rarely buy down rates. And when we do, it's one in 20 deals, if that. So it's all around how we position ourselves, the value that we show our clients that we get out of us beyond their rate, beyond the $14 a month they're going to save. So our finer coaches, they're getting value too from the interaction. So can you share a success story from one of your clients where you help them? Yeah, no, for sure. Oh, there's lots for sure. Of so I'll give you a couple. So our second session is about how to win a client over, how to wow them. You're their hero. And how do we beat up our competitions? We'll talk about that. One of the clients calls me on a Friday night. It's night for me. Not for, he's out of Vancouver. He says, Jim, I got to talk to you. So I deployed the tactics that you told me about how to win these clients without the lowest rate. And literally he did what we talked about. And he saved three deals. He beat National Bank on one. He beat World Bank on the other. I forgot the third one. But it was about $4.2 million worth of deals that he was losing. The week before our session, he was losing them. He went yeah. back. He got all three of them. 44000 bucks of savings that he got solely because of the mindset that he developed from that session. But yeah, so it's mindset. It's understanding the language, the nuance of it. Because everything like, there's an art to this. I recognize that. So that's cool. That's very cool. Another one. So in our first session, we talk about where do we get deals from? How do we get deals? And one of the things that we talk about is how to wow a realtor. I don't do a lot of realtors, but I do deal with some of them. And one of the things that I teach is how to get a file, file complete before an offer is made. So imagine having this skill set under your belt. You walk into a realty office and say, hey, I will get your deals done. File complete before you make an offer so you can compete. One of the clients used that. I think she landed a major office in your neighborhood because of that. So that worked out well. And the third person actually used some of the material I shared. So, you know, going out and getting contracts with alumni or whatever, you know, I shared the contracts, I shared the marketing material. So one of them actually went out and landed a financial planning firm and she's doing great with that. 
All right, hopefully you've got some good insights from Ron and Jim so far. In this upcoming section, I talked to Christine Buman from episode 359, and we discuss mindset, how she runs her team, and the importance of being authentic. Christine is also one of the coaches in our 10 Loans a Month Academy. I just honestly, the coolest part about this podcast is the amazing people I've been able to meet and then to figure out you know, what their superpower is and then have them as part of the academy coaching other mortgage brokers. It's just amazing to see what happens. So check out this clip with Christine. I'm very much a, here's where I want to get to. Here's where we all want to get to. Let's be really clear on our vision. And what do you each individually need from me? How can I support you to get there? However you get there is your own prerogative. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say do this and this and this. And they're amazing at giving me feedback. And yep. saying, you know, actually, it doesn't work for me this way. We do our, we do a team call every morning. And so my famous line is, be really mindful of the energy you're bringing to the team. Right. Because we overflow with our energy, right? And um, <laughs> so I had a tough week one week. And, and uh, one of my amazing ladies said to me, just so you know, last week, <laughs> the energy that you brought to the team wasn't awesome so if we can just shift that and I was like wow thank you for calling me out on that I needed it so badly right and sometimes we forget that we are leading that that charge we set the tone for the team right oh yeah Yeah. there's something that in the military they have this thing called commander's intent and so if you say hey look you need to go take this hill and you give somebody a very specific you got to go up the west side you got like when they get on the ground who knows that's going to work and so instead they say take the hill you're there you make the decisions on how to get up it We don't Mm -hmm. care if it's up the left, right, whatever that looks like. And so you've done the same thing with your team members. It's like, here's the vision, the intent. I'm going to give you the flexibility within that to be like, hey, I got to go pick up my kid at three. You know, I got this going on. And if you hire good people, honestly, it's so much more fun because they're going to come back with creative ideas and things that you didn't even see. You're like, oh, right. So this is what I found. So constantly reevaluating every Friday, we do a Friday report of where they feel their workload is on a scale of one to 10, um, how they're feeling in general. I'm constantly doing the check-ins of how are you feeling? How can I support you more? Is there anything you want to talk about? I change the questions based on their desire. Obviously, like, is, do you want me to change these questions? Is there anything more that, because I feel like sometimes when you can type it in and then know that the conversation is going to happen, there's a little bit of a barrier, you know what I mean? Of right now I'm feeling X, Y, Z. So based on those, I've gotten to know them fairly well of what their needs are. And then I just regularly check in and say, what do you love doing? What do you not love doing? Whatever questions feel relevant at the time. And then from that, we've really narrowed down. I don't know whether it's a specific, your A, X, Y, Z, but we've right. narrowed down the personality it's trait. Not like what's your spirit animal, but you're just really being intentional okay. about understanding your team. So <laughs> give me an example of when you say to your team member, like, you know, what do you love doing and not love doing? How have you adjusted their role? Or give me an example of like, how do you use that information to somehow change something? Okay, so for example, Monique, they're, they're gonna kill me for talking about them on the show. Uh, she's phenomenal on the phone. She is just the loveliest, kindest, most gentle soul. So, and I'll ask them, like, what do you love to do? That what fills your bucket? That's my yep. big thing. What fills your bucket? So hers is yoga. She's very peaceful, and I love that she's an extension of that side of me because we're all just multifaceted, right? Yep. And Tasha is phenomenal with the intricate problem solving. Like she can hammer out tasks like there's no tomorrow, and so she doesn't love talking on the phone. Where most underwriters would be picking up the phone and going through that with the clients, we completely changed their roles and said, okay, well then one person's going to do this. The other person's going to do this. And here's how we can fit to mold what works best for your personality going forward. 
Right. So when I think about this is first, if you're listening, you got to map out what your process looks like. Like what, yes. how does Christine want to cook? Oh, if you yeah. think if it's a kitchen, this yeah. is how we cook this. Yes. Your recipe. Now I you bring people in. a 15 page process document yeah. that gets changed all the time. And it is down to exactly what happens, scripts, everything. The 15 pages is just the bulk of the process. Then there are yeah. probably an extra 50. That creates a repeatable process, referable. So that you have the process mapped, then you get people and you put them in specific roles. Yeah. But then if you're really smart, you don't just say, hey, you, this is your spot. You're like, figure out make adjustments based on personality based on wiring based on you know natural skill set and then that's when your team is really good like because totally. it's like you're playing to their strengths right and so. i say to them why are you here why do you work here mm -hmm. really at the end of the day is it just for the paycheck you know what really what drives you what's your purpose so for me last year i was really trying to look at my purpose and not just for me personally, but the business, right? I think everybody gets to a point in mortgage brokering. Dustin always talks about this. There's a certain amount of money that you make. Once you pass that, you start to say, what's this all for? Why am I killing myself putting pouring all this time and energy into something for what purpose? So I asked them to take some time to think about it. <laughs> we spent a lot of time thinking and meeting about these things. And I said, what's your purpose for being here? And it was very, very interesting to me how different they were. And so Monique had shared, you know, when I bought my first home, no one was there to guide me through the process. And I love being able to support people and make them feel safe and encouraged throughout the whole way, you know, and Tasha was more task driven again. So it's interesting to me what their, their purpose has to be aligned with the business purpose with mine as well, but we can do tasks and we can have rules that complement what's most fulfilling to us as well. One of my favorite moments, and I think you've probably experienced it as well, is when you're getting to know someone, whether it's a stranger, when you're having one of those deep, connected, innate conversations, and you feel, it's like palpable, their energy, you feel their walls coming down, and you're like, oh, here we are. Yeah, now let's just talk. The right? real like, you is here. Yeah. yeah, and you can feel that. That, to me, is just such a magical place to be in. And you can't get there without being completely authentic. And what a lot of people don't recognize is that when you're perfectly polished, when everything about you is amazing all the time. Yeah, it's like filter Instagram, like hashtag yeah. no filter. Like, no, you have filters, right? But when you're vulnerable, it extends permission to everyone around you to be equally as vulnerable and to be like, oh, okay, yeah, she's a hot mess too. Awesome. We can all be just how we are. But we've all been around those people who are living in the facade. And then it's so uncomfortable because you feel like you have to be that way too, you know? All right. In this section, I talked to Katie Kalicki from episode 375, Getting Out of the Scarcity Mindset, how she tells clients no why you can't pour from an empty cup and how she applies that and getting out of the scarcity mindset and what she calls vampire clients. Great analogy for some, unfortunately, clients that are not, you know, that are just going to suck all the life out of you. Have a listen to this. So your first full year as a mortgage broker, when you were not being an assistant, how did that go for you? It went well. I would say my biggest struggle was saying no. I think something that a lot of brokers can attest to when you first start in the industry is I wanted to fund every file right. and I wanted to help every client that walked through the door, sometimes almost to a detriment. I have since learned kind of what my boundaries are and that has become very helpful. It's actually saying no sometimes lets me say yes to more things that align with me more that are going to make me more successful in the long run. Right. Okay. So how do you say no now then? So if I'm a client and I'm not a fit, pretend I'm that person. 
and I'll try not okay, to cry so when you tell me no. Perfect. I appreciate that. I guess the most simple way of putting it, and it's kind of contradictory, but I actually don't like to say no. One of the things that I actually stress to my clients that I like to use to differentiate myself from if they were to walk into a branch and deal with someone directly at the bank is that if my answer to you is no, it is only going to be no for right now. Right. I then want to give you and help you find the tools or guide you to the correct person that can assist you to get to where you need to be. So if it is no right now, it's not just a no and that's the end of the discussion. It is a no, but what do we need to do? How can I help you get to turn this no into a yes? I'd like to ask you a success quote that's had an impact on your life or business. Success quote. This is pretty generic, but honestly, just you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. How do you apply that to your life? Lots of ways. I say the first step is just really being intentional. I can't pour from an empty cup. So I have learned that if I am overworking myself, and not allowing myself to take breaks and to take time to do things that do fuel my soul, it actually is a detriment to my business. So when I am doing the things that I love that are not work, whether it be with family, I ride and show horses. So that's kind of my big escape. When I'm doing those things, that is what I'm doing. That is what I'm focused on. And I am not allowing distractions in. At the same time, I do the exact same when I'm working. So when I'm working, work time is work time and there are no distractions there, but just being okay with drawing a boundary and saying sometimes it's Sunday at nine o'clock. I do not need to answer that client right now. Yeah, that's really good. That's awesome. Okay. So can you share something that you failed at and now looking back, there was a lesson in it for you? Yeah. Kind of tying back to one of the first points that I said is just saying yes to everything. I would say saying yes to everything was a big fail because when I was doing that, I was coming from a place of a scarcity mindset thinking that if I just said yes, I was going to be making all of the money because I'm doing all the files. So I actually, I have a business coach and I have had her for just over 12 months now. So it's been just over a year that I've been working with her. One of the analogies that she gave me that has stuck with me and that I think of on a daily basis is essentially think of my client base, my current client base as every client, let's say I have within myself a mental capacity for 10 buckets. Each client, I am giving one bucket of my mental capacity to. Mm -hmm. The second that one client starts to take up more than one bucket, that is then taking away time and energy that I have from my other clients. Right. So at that point, we like to call them vampire fucking clients, vampire clients. Interview with a yeah, vampire. Exactly. They just suck the life out of you. At that point, if I realize now that they are taking up more than one of my buckets. It's actually not going to allow me to serve my other clients, my other referral partners, how I want to. And at that time, that's when I now make the decision. Am I going to keep this client? Do I refer them elsewhere? So I think flipping, like I said, in the beginning, I operated from a place of scarcity. Now I operate from a place of, I base my plans and my answers to things on where I want to be. Mm -hmm not where I currently am. Also, one thing that I always used to say that I am not a salesperson because I don't like being salesy because my version of the word salesy used to correspond with the car dealer at the car dealership. It's sleazy, I yeah, I had the same in, problem. I was like, ugh, I don't want to be one of those people. Yeah, and so I used to think, like, take my dad with me every time I go there. I'm not going to trust anything they say. That to me was sales. And so I had to learn and kind of reframe my mindset around that word and that definition 
to being that it doesn't have to be pushy. Sales can also come from a perspective of just wanting to help. I also think education is huge. So sometimes coming from a sales perspective, if you do it from an educational standpoint, it doesn't have to be pushy. I always thought if I have to convince someone that my product is better or that my rate is better, I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to be pushing them. I want them to make the decision they want to make. I now look at it, though, as if I'm not explaining to them what the benefits are of the product I'm proposing, I'm actually doing them a disservice. Right. You can't, um, they don't, they can't they make could, a good decision because they don't even know what they're saying no to or yes to. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I had to really shift that thinking in my own head. I'm not always being annoying if I'm following up. Sometimes people, they get busy. I get busy and I forget to respond to people. And I appreciate sometimes when someone says, hey, just checking in. How are you doing with this? Do you have any questions? It triggers that again for me. Oh, yeah, this is important. I want to deal with it. So rather than stopping a follow-up because I feel like, okay, they're getting annoyed or, oh, I'm being pushy, I stop, just kind of take a minute and think about, okay, what do I have to offer? How can I structure it as education rather than sales? Because the end goal essentially is to help the client. All right, in this next section, I talked to Dave LaRock on interest rates and house prices and managing expectations. So great conversation with Dave. We talk about managing client expectations when lenders are slow. That's definitely been a challenge in the last year and a bit. It might not be the case going forward if the volume of mortgages continues to go down. And then what happens when house prices go up, how to manage that. So have a listen. Well, I always want to get the best deal for the client. So if the turnaround time is slow, but we have time to work with, and a lot of times, for example, on a purchase, you've got 60 to 90 days, so you do have the time, I will generally still source the best rate with the best combination of terms and conditions on top. But there are limits to the pain that I can withstand as there are. To- Everybody has a pain tolerance. It's like, no, I'm tapping. I'm out. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, and there's definitely a point with some lenders, one in particular who will remain nameless, where I've just had enough. I can't take the waiting. And, you know, quite frankly, I would rather lose the business than put up with the stress of trying to interact with them at this point. As far as the way to handle clients, I mean, communication is always the key. You don't want your clients nervously wondering why they haven't heard from you. So it's important to, number one, manage the expectation up front and talk about the fact that the rate is attractive, the terms and conditions are great. This is why I think this is the right solution for you. And because the lender has an attractive product in the market and it's priced well, they're getting a lot of interest from the market and it's generated a lot of volume and they're slammed right now. And you kind of position it as the reason we have to wait is because you're getting... Yeah, it's like, hey, it's a movie that's really everybody wants to go see. So it's going to be, you're going to have to wait in line. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, because if you don't say stuff like that, if you don't manage client expectations, then the risk you run is that they're like, well, is this really a lender that we're wise to be borrowing from if they can't even get us an approval back? So you really have to be careful up front to manage it. And, you know, again, you don't have to apologize for market conditions. You want to set the expectation. The other thing I do, borrowers usually when they've bought a house or they've agreed to go ahead with a certain mortgage option, they want to get going. And you lose a lot of momentum if it takes a week or two to hear back from the lender, and then you got to chase them down and start getting docs and whatnot. So we like to keep clients busy right from the get-go. So if you know it's going to be a week or two before you hear from the lender, chances are you know what docs the lender is going to ask for. If the borrowers are keen at that point to start sending you docs and get the ball rolling, send out the list of what you know the lender is going to ask for and get the borrowers busy doing other stuff with the file so it feels to them like things are still happening. 
The other advantage then is that when the lender does finally get the commitment back to you, other than the appraisal and the signed documents, a lot of the other stuff is pretty much done and it's a lot less work thereafter. So again, keeping your clients busy on the file when they're keen to get at it gets you the docs up front and also keeps them busy so they're not thinking about why it's taking so long to get their approval back. Right. Okay. So a couple questions on that. So you said on a purchase that's 30 to 60 days out, is there a deadline where you would be like, we're not doing this? Like, do you have like a internal rule for yourself about a compressed timeline? Somebody shows up and says, Hey, can you close this in 10 days? Would you take that file? I guess would be my first question. And then B, how would you handle it differently? Well, sure. I mean, I'm always going to take the file and I work enough with enough lenders that somebody will do me a favor because I send them good business and I close what I send. So I can get the deal done in a pretty tight timeline, but I definitely will factor in turnaround time. There are certain lenders where if, if somebody calls me today and says, I need to close in three weeks, can you do it? I will tell them, here's the lay of the land. Right now, this is the best rate. And if you had 60 days, this is the lender I'd be recommending. But there is absolutely no chance that we can get this deal approved and ready in the next three weeks with that lender. And as a result, uh, if you want to work with me, this is the best I can offer you. And that way, you know, people are sometimes reluctant to be candid in their assessment of market conditions. I think people understand when they're coming to you last minute and they need a rush, that they may not get the best rate in the market. And when you explain to them, it's not that I don't have that rate, it's that I can't offer it to you because if I try, it may well end in heartbreak and you might not get your mortgage on time and you might not close and get your house. And as a result of not having enough time, we need to go with a lender that I know will close, but has a rate that's a bit higher. And I've never had pushback from clients in that scenario. They trust me enough to know market conditions. And at the end of the day, they don't want to risk not getting their financing. So I lay it out. I say, here's the best rate I would be offering you if you go to my website. Right. So uh, basically, you just be transparent. People explain to them what's going on. And then that way, you're not having to like, you don't have to sell against yourself. Because really, the clients put themselves in this position. What do you think will be the ripple effect if rates go up, even if it's temporarily, what that would do to the housing market? Well, to use your example, Scott, when gas prices go up, some people drive less. Yeah, so when house prices go up, maybe people spend less. I mean, that intuitively should be what happens. Typically, in a perfect market, if you were sitting in economics class, the professor at the front of the room would say, well, if borrowing costs rise, house prices should adjust to absorb those borrowing costs in a balanced equal market. So it makes sense to me that as interest rates rise, house price appreciation should slow and whether that means it only stops rising at the rate it's rising or house prices fall, that's tough to say. It's a complicated question for a few different reasons. Number one, borrowers today are being qualified at the stress test rate, which is 5.25%. Rates have gone from 2% to 3%. So from a qualification standpoint, nobody's affordability has been impacted by rate rises in terms of what they can qualify for. Now, that may not matter when you've got a budget and you've got kids and daycare and all kinds of other costs to manage. And yes, you're paying out more each month. But when you stand there in front of my desk with your application to apply for a mortgage, your qualification rate is still 5.25%, regardless of all of the upward movements in actual rates. Does the movement up in rates change psychology? Right now, we're such a momentum-driven market. People have been buying properties on spec with the faith that prices are just going to go up forever. Does the fact that rates are higher now cause doubt to creep in? One thing I notice in my Twitter account 
is every real estate agent I follow on Twitter who has an offer night when no one shows up is predicting the end of the world. They're saying, this is it. This is the sign. Now, nobody showed up on my offer night. So this is it. The market has turned. Get ready, people. Fasten your seatbelts. Prices are going to crash. And obviously, that's a dramatic overreaction. And no, you, no, realtors are dramatic. What are you talking about? <laughs> when you read those day after day, they get a bit tiring. But the reality is, I think when you're buying in a market that's gone up by as much as our markets have gone up by, you're climbing a worry wall. You have to rationalize why it's still a good time to buy, despite the fact that prices have been screaming higher. The higher prices go, the higher that worry wall gets. The ultimate determinant of where house prices are headed becomes a psychological question more than a mathematical one based on actual movements and rates. I think the danger that the move up in rates presents the market, I think right now is more psychological than practical, but I don't want to diminish the risk. Well, the market's not rational, so that you can't dismiss the psychological impact of that for sure. Right. Um, In this market, the psychological impact is more important than the mathematical impact, at least in my mind, because the market is really being driven by psychology. When rental property investors are willing to buy rental properties with negative cap rates and they have to throw money in every month just to keep the place afloat, They're only doing it because they think house prices are going to keep rising. And there are lots of people willing to make that bet today. And to me, that is not a rational decision. And ultimately, it may take a long time for it to happen, but the market will come back into balance. And the people who have made those investments will, I think, eventually regret it. But, you know, the market can remain irrational for a lot longer than we think. And, you know, in my mind, this has gone on for long enough already and probably should have already happened. So will higher rates be the impetus that pops housing bubbles around the country tough to say i mean we're going to find out because over the short term it looks like they're going to keep going up so the next 12 months will give us a lot of valuable information about that question all right this is the last section and it's a conversation i have with todd duncan on overcoming fear it's from episode 380 quite enjoyed my conversation with todd I'd never actually had that much time to chat with him. I've met him before briefly, but fantastic episode. I learned a lot from him and the guy is really like the Tony Robbins in the mortgage industry. So yeah, we talk about that. So we talk about connecting with people and overcoming fear and the law of courtship and high trust selling. Have a listen. So when you have eye contact and somebody's approaching you and you can see the emotion in the eyes, you have a connection that's already happening. And we had a high trust sales academy in Dallas, Texas in December. We had 256 mortgage brokers attend that event. And I had people come up every break and eye contact led to tears and tears led to discovery and discovery led to growth. And I had adults, 40, 45, 50 year old adults making commitments and contracts with how to change their life and to watch the pain. Saturday in Miami, I had three business owners come up to me and all three were crying because they had the same challenge going on with one of their children that I have going on with both of my children. And there was this just immediate connection because you can, Mm -hmm. when you start to talk about something that's very deep and emotional, you know, it does physiologically trigger tears. And I see that. And so for me, what I try to tell people is connect at the eyes and they'll lead you to the heart. Mm-hmm. But if you don't connect to the eyes, you can't have a heart-based conversation. So I noticed that, and I noticed huge levels of fear and uncertainty. I see that almost instantly. You know, beyond the tears is 
the fear of change. You talk about mindset and, you know, you look at the word fear and fear is just an emotion. And, you know, most people believe in what it stands for, which is false experiences appearing real. We can mm-hmm. kind of put off on something, what it's going to happen, like call reluctance. We imagine a call going the wrong way instead of brilliantly. What would happen if we had call excitement? What if fear became feeling excited and ready? What if that's what fear stood for? These guys were feeding social real time as I was talking, you know, kind of the applaudometer or whatever. And mm-hmm. when I started talking about fear is actually a very positive word. If you're purposeful and you're skilled and you have the right motive for what you're doing and you've developed that skill so you have some confidence, you're going to feel excited and ready and you're going to go. And why would you not do that? And there's this in-between kind of thing, which you take fear and you know, the first one, you know, feeling excited and ready. The middle is face everything and rise. So, you know, you look over your right shoulder and you see the word mindset. What if I just faced everything and rose above? And what if I saw everything I faced as a teacher? Then it would be good, you know? And so I think those are the two things. Emotion leads to the heart and fear gets in the way of progress. My next question is, what's the kind of the best improvement you've made to your high trust curriculum stuff in the last little while? You know, I think what is really interesting about the concept that we can all improve is when you have a book that this year, and actually just last month in February, is celebrating its 20th year of publication, that's a book that matters, right? It's mm-hmm. it's very, very rare that a book stays in print for 20 years. And the law of courtship, which is one of the laws in the book, there's 14 laws, probably the most important law of any relationship that we could ever have. And what the law of courtship says is, if it's not right on the inside, it's never going to be right on the outside. Meaning that if you and I don't have shared values, the outside is never going to work. And so it's about this deeper connection. And so what we did is we took the high trust interview and we said, let's innovate this a little bit. Let's understand how we could actually 80, 20, a conversation. How could we teach professionals to use less words, we call it conversational productivity, use less words in the form of questions that give you more information and create more trust and push out any tension or resistance. What if we could do that? So we started measuring the amount of words that a real estate agent would use or a mortgage broker would use in a presentation. And we looked at 100 and we said, You know, if you could take the 100 down to 80, we started measuring conversion, like conversations that lead to yes. And so at the 80 words, instead of 100 words, we got a 17% yes rate. Okay, not bad, but not great. So then we go all the way down to, let's go from 100 words to 80 words. Let's go from 80 words down to 20 words. So we're going to 80, 20. You're going to flip the other way. And conversion went to 73%. So people always go, well, what's an example of that? So I got one that's as fresh. That was my next question. Give me an example. This is two hours ago. Two hours ago, we get a mortgage broker on the phone. There's a team of 50. We're having a a short follow-up webinar. And I said to them in January, I said, guys, at the end of February, we're going to have a follow-up call. And I want you to report in on how you used Talk Less, Sell More, which is really the white paper around this whole thing. And what was the impact? 
And I want you to do it with 10 borrowers and I want you to do it with 10 referral partners. So I'm asking for volunteers and Tim raises his hand and we unmute him. He goes live and he said, I had a, a meeting with a husband and wife that live in Anchorage, Alaska, and they're moving to Portland, Oregon. And I asked them this question. So everybody's just kind of like bated breath, right? What is the question? Tim goes, here's my question. I looked them both in the eyes. And I asked, what would it mean to you to own a home? And that was it. That's the only question he asked. Within about five seconds, the wife is crying. Within about 30, the husband is crying. And you can just see it. Remember I told you about eye contact and, mm -hmm. and emotion? Well, the emotion is the glassy eyes go to pouring out the tears. It ends up, Scott, that if these two people, this couple first-time home purchasers qualify and buy a home, they would be the first people in the history of the family. Not like in a generation, like for Ever. as far back as the to own a home. Wow. And that's all it took. They completed the application. 21 days later, they were approved. And a couple of weeks later, they settled the loan. And now they own a home. And there was no price discussion, no interest rate discussion, no nothing. One question. Yes. Hi, thanks again for listening to this best of episode. Uh, hopefully you got some great insights. We basically condensed a whole bunch of episodes down into some just high value show for you guys. A couple quick things. First, if you are a experienced mortgage broker and you want to make 2022 great, even though it looks like it's going to be a challenging year, I'd highly encourage you to go check out 10 months a month. Com. We have an academy with some amazing coaches, all experienced, top producing brokers who have different superpowers that can help you grow your business. Go check that out. And if you're a new mortgage broker and you're like, hey, I'm a new mortgage agent, how do I get my business going? I'd send you over to rookie2rockstar.ca. This is for Canadians, this particular one. They 10 loans a month is Canadian and American. And we have a whole program there designed to help rookies build their businesses, referral-based business faster than anywhere else, even in this challenging market. Go check that out. Thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.